Okay, church, uh, you turn to Luke 19, uh, verse 11. Uh, why don't we stand and read? While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, A nobleman was, went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself, and then return. And he called ten of his slaves, and gave them ten minas, and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him, and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, to whom he had given the money, be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man, you take up what you do not lay down, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down, and reaping what I did not sow? Then that why did you not put my money in the bank, having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten already. I tell you that to everyone who, is, who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Let's pray. Lord, this uh, parable is probably, from my opinion anyway, one of the most tricky ones to solve and figure out in the scriptures. Uh, there's lots of different ideas about what this is sort of conveying. I pray, God, that for, uh, for your guidance and your direction um, through your spirit as we try to figure this out as a church community. And I'm grateful that you've given every one of us the Holy Spirit to uh, help steer this whole thing into truth. And it starts with me and it, it ends with the congregation. And we pray for a, an uplifting time together, time of encouragement as we get to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for a great start to this, the, the morning. It's been surprising for me, an emotional one. I was just super uh, moved by your consideration for our family and the prayer time. And, and I found the worship uh, very moving as well and uh, was very appreciative of all the, the people who put effort into that. So thanks for the great, a great start. But we're back to our sermon series we began last week on the parables. And if you were here last week, we did the, what was typically known as the Good Samaritan. We spoke a lot about that. And today we're going to do another parable um, commonly known as the, as the Ten Minas. Now before we dive into the parable today, I want to remind you of what parables are. They're earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. Another, or another way of saying it is they're fictional stories designed to communicate a spiritual truth by way of comparison. Now, why it's important to take our time through parables is because if we get the comparison wrong, we get the whole parable wrong. If we get the comparison correct, 
then we understand the spiritual truth that Jesus intentionally intended to give, convey to his listeners back then, which means that we get it right for us today. Now why I say this, I'm just curious, I'm just curious what you have for your title above verse 11. Because sometimes the Bible has titles written. What do you, does anybody have, like mine says, Christ gives the parable of the ten minus. What does anyone else say? Parable of money usage. Parable of money usage, good. Anyone else have that? Abilene, okay, good. Parable of money usage. Okay, I'm going to suggest to you strongly that this has nothing to do with money usage. Okay, and this is important because I just said, if you want to get the comparison right, to get the spiritual truth right, you have to get the comparison right. I don't think this is talking about money at all, and you'll have your chance to weigh in at the end of the sermon and see if you think that you're convinced through the scriptures that this is the case. And so, let's, uh, let's move forward. The way we figure out what the parable is about is the same way you do every service and every sermon, and that is we go, go through the context. The context is king. The context is key. <clears throat> let's look at the context of the parable in verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Jesus makes it clear here, that, or Luke makes it clear, I should say, that Jesus tells this parable because of the Jews' misunderstanding about the timing in which the kingdom of God was going to appear. There was going to be a delay from Jesus' point of view that these people did not understand. And this, of course, was an issue that was faced throughout the entire ministry of Jesus. This belief didn't just exist amongst the masses, but his disciples as well. Remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 6? Even after the resurrection happens, and he's appeared to them for, like, for days and days and days, that as he's about to ascend into heaven, the disciples ask him, Jesus, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? So, I mean, it was clearly a Jewish misunderstanding about what, well, the timing of the kingdom. Everyone, including the disciples, missed Jesus' initial purpose and mission for coming as Messiah. And why that's important is because this event, this parable is sandwiched between two very significant events. The first event is he's just come from Jer he's just been in Jericho and he's just spoken to Zacchaeus. And you know the story of Zacchaeus, this tax collector that wants to see Jesus. He goes to great extremes to see him. Jesus comes over to his house and then he makes this declaration about Zacchaeus when he repents. He says in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this man's house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. The next event that's really important, which is parable, what happens after this parable, is verse 28. After he had said these things, i.e. the parable, he was going ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was days away from his crucifixion. So look what the parable is between. It's between the, self, the saving of a soul, his purpose and mission for coming as Savior. Then he's going off to the cross to basically be coronated in, as king in that way. See, Jesus was a coming initially as Savior, not as king. The kingdom was reserved for a future time, and these people had missed it. They thought with everything going on in Jerusalem and the way Jesus was speaking and the miracles they saw and everything he was talking about, that the kingdom of God was going to appear now. They thought it was going to appear now. And so Jesus says, no, I haven't come to make the kingdom come now. I haven't come to overthrow Rome. 
like you think and have an earthly kingdom. I've come, that's a future reality. I've come for a different purpose now. It's for the purpose of salvation. I'm savior first, king second. It's in that order. Now just for curiosity's sake, well not in curiosity's sake, pretty obvious with that context, this has nothing to do with money. Just a thought, okay? With all this though in mind, let's dive in. And again, I come to you with a bit of fear of trembling in this because this is a really tough parable and I, you know, it's hard to, I'm hoping to get the spiritual truths that Jesus wants to convey out there. The best way I think to teach this then is not to go verse by verse, but to go character by character. So let's start off with a nobleman in verse 12. Let's read verse 12. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Notice this nobleman here is about to receive a kingdom, but in order to receive it, he must travel a long distance to another country to get it and then return. The important thing I don't want you to miss here is that even though the return is a certainty from the nobleman's perspective, there's no mention given of the length of time that was going to occur between the departure and the future arrival. Catch that? There's no certainty of the future of amount, length of time between his initial leaving and his coming back. Before this nobleman leaves then, uh, he in verse 13 appoints 10 slaves to do business for him before he returns. And don't think of slaves in a negative way, like the, the way that Hollywood portrays, like the inhumane treatment of people. This is more of an employer-employee relationship. Like a, it's a master-slave relationship in that way. So the nobleman gives each of his 10 slaves a mina, or a mina, and this, ref this reflects on three months worth of wages in the Jewish culture. So I just, for fun, if, if, you, if you happen to make around $80,000 a year as an annual income, uh, that would be about $20,000 in today's value. 20000 in today's value. Uh, notice that the, the minas go to, the, all the minas belong to the master. They're not the slaves to start with. He's the one that owns them. He's the one that gives them. And he gives each 10 slaves one each. So it's equal distribution. And he tells them to go and wheel and deal and basically make a profit with these, with these minas. After the nobleman returns from receiving his kingdom in verse 15, he calls his slaves to an account. He calls his slaves to account and wants to hear how they've done with their business. The nobleman is known to reward faithfulness. And he's known to reward faithfulness. In verse 17, because the, the first uh, slave came back and turned, made one mina turn into ten minas, he says this, Well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be an authority over ten cities. So because the man was, uh, had taken his first the mina and made a tenfold profit, he was rewarded handsomely with ten cities to be authority over. The second slave, uh, in verse 18, uh, takes the same mina and produces a fivefold profit, and so he receives five cities. What this demonstrates, church, is that this nobleman is extremely gracious and generous to those who are faithful. He moved from entrusting them with 20,000 of his own dollars and he's got a lot of money. If he can give 10 people 20 grand, that's $200,000. So he just hands out freely a quarter million dollars. And he calls it a very little thing. He's been faithful with very little. So he's, to him, it's nothing. 
right? Tim is like a toonie. And he says this, um, he's, oh, yeah, he's, he's, he boosts when trusting with this into an advancement, an advancement with incredible opportunity and favor. To reign with him with authority, that's a pretty generous gift for being faithful. You move from handling a little bit of money to ruling over 10 cities. You're a co-ruler with this nobleman. That's, that's an incredible reward. These slaves, now we'll go to the slaves. These slaves, there's 10 in total. Uh, all 10 are given one mina. And they're treated equally in terms of the master's trust and generosity. They're all given the same opportunity. There's, he's not picking favorites here initially. Everyone's on an equal playing field. But most of the attention in the parable is given to three men in particular. And we've said a little bit about these guys already. But the first is the ten minus servant in verse 16. And the second is the five, murders, five minus servant in verse 18. Now I put these two men together because it was those two that the master was ultimately pleased with. He's the one that he considered to be, they were the ones he considered to be very faithful and the ones that he rewarded handsomely. Now why I think this is such an important observation is this. Remember the previous observation we just made about the nobleman's timing in his return. These men who were faithful knew their master was traveling to a distant country to receive a kingdom. There is, but they had absolutely no idea of how long he would be away. They, did, where they were not told, I'll be back in a week, do business. I'll be back in a month, do business. I'll be back in 20 years, do business. They had no idea. And yet, it didn't stop them going to hard work and putting that money to, to use. What that demonstrates to us is they, 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 they didn't have this attitude that many employees have of their, or, yeah, employees have of their bosses, where the cat's away so the mice will play, right? They weren't workers like that. These men were like, you know what? He's gone and we're going to take this opportunity to put his money to good use and serve and honor him to our fullest capacity. It's flat out in honor of our master. I think that's really important. The third is this handkerchief slave in verse 20. I just say that because that's what he's, he's called. He says, here's your mina in verse 20, which I kept to put away in a handkerchief. So let's just call him a handkerchief slave. He had the same opportunity as everyone else. He was given one mina, like everyone else, $20,000. And instead of investing it and using, using the time wisely with his master gone, he did nothing with it. Nothing. The reason for this is in verse 21. He feared him. He says, I was afraid of you because you're an exacting man. You take up what you do not lay down and reap what you did not sow. It's interesting that this third slave accuses master of not only being harsh by calling him an exacting man, but fraudulent in his business dealings. The nobleman's reply, of course, is brilliant. Because he said this, if I'm really like that in character, if I'm truly someone that you need to fear and someone that you think is crooked, why in the world would you go and do nothing with it? That's the worst thing you could do because knowing my personality, why didn't you, he says in verse 23, why did you not at least put my money in the bank and come and I would have collected interest? <laughs> so you can do nothing with it by putting it in the bank. You never have to be responsible for it. At least it will collect interest. What you did is you put it in the ground and it did nothing. If you truly feared me like you say you do, you would have done something different with that mina. 
The result, though, of this, the result of this man's unfaithfulness is that he's called worthless. He's called worthless. That's the title given to him by the nobleman in verse 22. And more importantly, that his mina is taken away. It's taken away in verse 24. He said, he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. The initial mina gift that would be given to the master was retrieved back from the master and put to the most faithful of all, or the, the one who is most profitable of all the, uh, the slaves. The next category would be there were seven remaining slaves. Now there's some discussion here that, amongst people about what, uh, who they are and why they're not mentioned, but I believe they are. I think the bystanders in verse 24 are the seven remaining slaves. The bystanders, the, ten, the seven remaining slaves, the ones told to take the mina away and give it to the one with ten minas. The slaves and their, 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 um, their uh, response are astounded by the nobleman's continued grace and generosity towards their fellow co-worker who was already richly rewarded. But I think these, this, this guy, these bystanders are the seven slaves based on two observations in the text. One, in verse 25, they call him master. Master, he has ten minas already. We've seen that word before. Look at verse 16. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. So I believe that uh, that's one key observation. But the more important observation to me as well is verse 15. When the, when the nobleman returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that the, these slaves to whom had given the money be called to him. So this comes after the ten slaves were sent out with a mina each. He doesn't call just three there, he calls all of them. And so they're all standing there in front of the nobleman and he's going to number one, how did you do? I got 10, how did you? I got five, how did you do? I, I put it in a handkerchief. How did, okay, now listen men who are still standing here, you take that mean away. I think it's clear the bystanders here are the other seven remaining slaves. Finally, two more characters to look, work through. The citizens and delegates in verse 14. It says, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now these citizens, of course, are described as hating him and they don't want him to rule as their king. And we can see them going to great measures to prevent this rule. They send a delegation, basically a, representa a representation of them, of the people, to, to go out ahead of this nobleman to try to prevent him from receiving his kingship. These people, although it's not stated here, if you're a delegate from your local um, people, you're probably one of, uh, of notoriety, or one of influence, uh, one who's got, known to have some power and some persuasion behind you. You probably have the ability to convince someone strongly with your words and actions to step down if you wanted to. So these delegations were like a, a more uh, elite group within the citizens that were going to represent the people. When the nobleman returns and calls these guys to account after he becomes king, it's, it's curtains for these guys in verse 27. He says, These enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. These people are put to death for the rebellion against the king, a very familiar thing in the ancient culture and still in uh, dictatorships today. That's why people are afraid to live in China afraid to live in Iran, North Korea, and so on. So here's a summary of the story, or of the, of the observations. I'll do it in like one minute. 
or so, a minute and a half, okay? A nobleman is about to receive his kingdom, but in order to do so, he must first travel to a distant country to receive it. Before he leaves, he gives his workers some of his money and gives them the task of turning a profit with what he has entrusted to them. This nobleman not only has slaves, but has citizens underneath him as well. These citizens are not looking to be subject to the nobleman, they actually hate him and don't want him to rule. Even so far as they get a delegation to go after him to thwart his reign. The citizens uh, and the delegations, though, fail to prevent the nobleman receiving the kingdom, and the nobleman returns. Upon his return, the nobleman calls his subjects to account. He begins with his workers, those close to him. Two had done very well and proven to be very faithful. As a result, they're rewarded, they're rewarded greatly. One had proved, who started off with some faithfulness proved to be unfaithful by his mishandling of his, the money by hiding it. He's called worthless, and the money that was initially entrusted to him was taken away and given to the most profitable servant. The citizens and the delegations who wanted him gone were brought before the nobleman, and they were killed, and they were for their rebellion against the king. So here is what I think the parable is about, and what the spiritual truths Jesus is trying to convey. The nobleman in the parable is Jesus. <coughs> like the nobleman, Jesus too had royal status, but had to travel to a far distance to receive his kingdom. This, of course, is a reference to his ascension to heaven after the crucifixion. Like the nobleman, there was a promise of his return. This return, of course, is in the future and will occur at a second coming in which he will physically, physically rule as as king and lord ruling out of Jerusalem. Places like Zechariah speak about this in chapter 14. Like the nobleman before him, who is about to receive a kingdom, uh, he has slaves he puts to work. These slaves who are faithful, the faithful slaves, represent followers of Jesus today. The mina that they were asked to do business with represents the gospel message that they've received, that we have received, and that we are asked to live out in our lives. It's really, in, in essence, too, like an offer of salvation. Think about this in, in Matthew 28. Jesus says this, Go and therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe that all I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know what's important there? He's about to go where? Ascend to the Father. And he says, I've got some work for you to do. I want you to do some business for me while I'm gone until the end of the age till I get back. I want you to make disciples, baptize them, teach them. Bring people to salvation, teach them how to live my way. That's the work. That's the work. And we see this all throughout the scripture. So, this, so the faithful servants then again represent followers of Jesus. The mina has to do with the gospel message. The faithful slaves, of course, are the ones that produce fruit for Jesus Christ. So the faithful ones who produce fruit are like the ten and five mina men in the parable. And, they will and we will receive great rewards, great rewards from his generosity at Christ's return. To those who prove to be faithless, like the handkerchief servant, uh, there are people like that who follow Christ too initially. But when they do nothing with the gospel, they will prove themselves worthless and will lose the initial reward that was promised to them in the beginning. We see examples of this. Judas, 
We went through Second Peter, the false teachers. In Calgary, just about six months ago, a free Methodist pastor that I know fairly well just walked away from God and said, God, I'm going to put your Nina in a handkerchief. I don't want you anymore. These citizens in the story, of course, in the original context, proved who were enemies were the Jews. They were the Jews. In Luke 23, 21, they're yelling out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And in John 1, 11, he says there in his opening gospel, He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. The delegates, I suggest, are the religious leadership of the day. They're the scribes and Pharisees who represent the people who basically have the authority to get rid of this guy and try to thwart his plan. This represents anyone today who rejects Jesus Christ in this lifetime and as a result will have to face pending judgment at a second coming. And this idea of slaying them in his presence, um, this in the Bible, when you, when you die in, in, or you come to the end of your life in, or you're slain in Bible terms, that means to be eternally separated from God. You don't lose your life per se, you, you continue in a, as a spiritual being and I believe there'll be a resurrected body for those people too. And you, and you will live, but you'll live eternally separated. That's what death means in the Bible, to be eternally separated from God. And like this nobleman then, we can see that regardless of people's attitudes towards him, everyone is called into account. Faithful, faithless, and foes. Three categories of people. But everyone will be subject to his authority. It didn't matter whether you were a favor of him or faithless towards him in this parable or whether you were a foe of his, you were called into account. And it's the same thing for us to God is, Jesus Christ is the creator and king of the universe. Everyone is subject to him whether they recognize it or not. Romans 14 11 rightly says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. So what do I think the lessons are for us today? First one, the parable, okay, let me back up one second. Every time I teach a parable, my, my main purpose in teaching you is to give you the one spiritual truth that you have to know. So when we did last week about the Good Samaritan, you know, I didn't want you to think the point of the passage is when you see someone on the street who's like, that needs their, like a new shoelace, that you go and buy my shoelace. That's not what a, being a good Samaritan is all about. It was far greater than that, right? The spiritual truths in there were massive. I want you to see the, the main point of the spiritual passage every time we do these parables, and then we can deal with the side lessons. So here's the key lesson, I think. This parable is not about the usage of money, but our faithfulness to the gospel message as we wait in anticipation for the Lord's return and established kingdom. I think that is clear from this passage. It's not about the money usage per se. Like, you know, it might be included as part of being faithful, but it's not about that. It's about our faithfulness to the gospel message that we've initially received as we wait in participation for the Lord's return and established kingdom. Second lesson. Every human being will be accountable to Jesus for what they personally do with the gospel message. Everybody in this parable gave an account for their life. Everyone. The faithful gave an account. The faithless gave an account. The foe gave an account. The question for us is which one are we going to be when Christ returns? And here's the thing. 
we don't know the exact day he's coming back. Just like the parable, it didn't, the, these slaves didn't know when he was coming back. Now we have clues in the New Testament, and we've spoken about that in our services. But we don't have to, we should not have the attitude, well, the, the cat's away, so the mice will play. If we can learn anything from these faithful slaves, we get to work. We get to work for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because of our, because we honor and love and respect him. For what he's done for us, he's savior first and then king. Third, I think this is exciting. A life of faithfulness will be greatly rewarded. A life of faithfulness is greatly rewarded. I love this in the parable when I saw this observation. Like, these guys were faithful in a little thing. They had they handled $20,000 in our today's terms. They were given authority over cities. They, they go from basically like a, a banker to like prime minister. Like, just like that. Because of their faithfulness. Talk about authority and shared responsibility with a nobleman. What an exciting thing. And Jesus Christ, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. I, a good sermon for me to do will be, what do the rewards look like in heaven that were promised? I, I, maybe you guys know some of them. I, I have to do a study on that. But here's what I do know. Whatever they're going to be, they're going to be extremely gracious and generous and bountiful gifts from the Lord. That's the illustration from the parable. You know, I think the scripture says, like, no, I cannot comprehend and ear can under, hear the, the beauty that the, the Lord has and the promises He has awaiting for us in glory. That's going to be an incredible, incredible experience. And we will be rewarded greatly for faithfulness. And what I love about this too is that when, when these two faithful slaves came to talk to the nobleman, the amount of fruit they produced, five and ten, was not even spoken about. He didn't say, well, you know, to the five guy, well, you know your buddy over here did ten, right? Like, so, thanks for trying and getting five, but man, it would have been nice if you got seven. There was no mention of five and ten. There was no belittling for one being less than the other. He was just excited about their faithfulness. He was excited about their faithfulness regardless of how much fruit that, that proved to bear. That's a great lesson for us, church. We're all gifted differently. We all have different strengths and weaknesses. We're not to look at one another and go, well, he can do that and she can do this and I can't do this and so therefore who, God doesn't care about me. That's not, the, that's not true at all. Be faithful with what the gifts and the graces that God has given you and the gift of salvation has given you and put that to good work. You will be rewarded appropriately. Finally, well, actually, maybe I should add this. I think it's important to say, and it goes without saying, though, that on the flip side, a life of faithlessness and a life of being a foe will be punished greatly. <laughs> right? Take that mina away. The gospel that you received, the, the blessings of being related to me, it's gone. You're no longer part of my team. The enemy, you're going to be slain in my presence. There's, a, there's drastic consequences for the other two sides of the coin. Again, we just press forward, honoring and loving our master, knowing that he's eventually coming back. Just be faithful. Just be faithful. And finally, it's an overarching lesson throughout the whole thing. While Jesus is Lord and King over all, His complete dominion still awaits future conquest. Savior first, King second. Initial kingdom, come to save. He puts us to work. 
And when, and when, and when, when people, like when he, when he sees it fit to come back, when he sees enough people are being part of his kingdom where the gospel's gone out to the ends of the earth to the means and ends that he thinks appropriate, and enough people have responded to his gospel that he thinks are appropriate, he will come back. And then he's king, and then he rules on this earth. Then he rules on this earth. And he establishes the very thing that the Jews back then, the disciples, wanted an earthly reign. Okay, enough said. I'd love to hear your thoughts, and uh, hopefully, this parable has taken on new meaning and new purpose and new clarity, inspired hopefully by the Holy Spirit's guidance today and not my words and my mind.